Good morning, Grace. We're going to hover over 1 Peter today, but if you want, uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 and put a bookmark there and also Psalm 139, and I'll explain more as we go. So a bookmark in Genesis 1 as well as Psalm 139. What would you do if your government said that you had no value, no worth, no dignity, and therefore you were obsolete? What would you do if your government said it was going to dispose of you? Rod Serling tackled this in an episode of The Twilight Zone called The Obsolete Man. In this episode, Burgess Meredith, as expected, puts in a stellar performance as Romney Wordsworth, a man deemed obsolete by his country. In a future totalitarian America, Romney Wordsworth is a man put on trial for the crime of being obsolete. His occupation as a librarian is a crime punishable by death as the state has eliminated, eliminated all books and literature. Romney believes in God, a crime also punishable by death, as the state claims to have proven that there is no God. He is prosecuted by the chancellor, who announces in front of the assembled court that Romney Wordsworth, in not being an asset to the state, shall be liquidated. After being convicted, Wordsworth is allowed to choose his method of execution, he cryptically requests that he be granted a personal assassin to whom he may privately disclose his preferred method of execution. He also requests that his execution be televised nationwide. Thinking that the spectacle will help show the public what happens when citizens become of no use to the state, the chancellor and the court grants both of his requests. A television camera is installed in Wordsworth's study to broadcast his final hours and his execution live to the nation. He summons the chancellor who arrives at exactly 11.16 p.m. After some discussion, Romney Wordsworth reveals to the chancellor that his chosen method of execution is by a bomb set to go off in his room at midnight. He explains that the reaction to imminent execution that will interest the public is not his own execution, but the chancellor's execution, as the door has been locked and there is no one outside to help the chancellor escape. Romney intends to show the nation how a spiritual man faces death, and he proceeds to read from his illegal, long-hidden copy of the Bible. He also points out, as the events are being broadcast live, that the state would risk losing its status in the eyes of the people by trying to rescue the chancellor. As the time draws to a close, Wordsworth's calm acceptance of death stands in stark contrast with the chancellor's increasing panic. Moments before the bomb explodes, the chancellor desperately begs to be let go. He says, in the name of God, let me go, Wordsworth. And Romney says that in the name of God, he will let him go. He releases the chancellor. And as the chancellor bursts out of the room and down the stairs, the bomb goes off and kills Romney Wordsworth, who in his last seconds of life stands tall and has a facial expression of peace and satisfaction. 
In the final scene, the chancellor returns to the courtroom to discover that his own subaltern has replaced him and that the chancellor himself is now obsolete because the court says to him, you have disgraced the state. You have proven yourself a coward. You have, therefore, no function. Immediately convicted, the former chancellor screams as the crowd in the courtroom apprehends him. He continues to plead with the court, insisting that he is in fact not obsolete and he wishes only to serve the state as the crowd appears to kill him. What do you do when you are told that you have no value, no worth, no dignity as a human being and therefore you are obsolete? You run to the Bible. You run to Jesus. Because Jesus tells us that no matter what we do or have ever done, we have value, we have worth. God's word clearly tells us that we bear the image of the triune God precisely because the triune God is our creator. As human beings, we are the image of God, the image of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But that's not how we typically see humanity, is it? We tend, especially in the church, to see ourselves as no good, as worms, as awful sinners. And it's true. We are sinners, That is very true. There is no denying that. There is no getting around the fact that you and I are sinners. We are all born sinners and rebels against God. But we have value because God made us and he made us in his image. African-American actress and blues, jazz, and gospel singer Ethel Waters knew this. Though she was conceived in rape, she is credited with saying, I know I am somebody because God don't make no junk. And that's our big idea today as we talk about the value and the worth and the dignity of human beings. God don't make no junk. I know that's bad grammar, but maybe you've heard the expression before. God don't make no junk. As human beings, we are made in God's image. We are not junk. We have value. We have worth, even though we are sinners. And that's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 17, honor everyone. We are called to honor every human being because we are made in the image of God. And so since today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, we're going to use this phrase in 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone, as a springboard to see why we are called to take a stand as God's people against God dishonoring things like abortion and human trafficking and terrorism and child abuse, and spousal abuse, and bullying, and racism, and slavery. And then next week, we'll circle back around to verse 13, pick up our study in First Peter, and Peter will tell us why and how, as believers, we can submit to a government that allows the killing of unborn babies. 
We'll see how and why we can submit to a government that does many God-dishonoring things. And that's next week. But today, we're going to see why Peter could command us to honor everyone. And the reason why we should honor every human being, regardless of what they do or say, or how they live, or regardless of what their political affiliation is, the reason we should honor every person is because every single human being is made in the image of God. In fact, Peter begins verse 17 by saying, honor everyone, and he ends verse 17 by saying, honor the emperor. This means that we are called to treat every single person, regardless of where they are on the social ladder, every single person we are called to treat with dignity and respect. In our case, it would be the president. We're called to honor President Barack Obama. And we're called to honor even the lowest person in our city at the bottom of the barrel. Honor everyone. Treat every single person with dignity and respect because every single person is made in God's image. And that's what God's word says in Genesis chapter 1. So look at Genesis chapter 1. Familiar verses to you, I'm sure, verses 26 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what does it mean that we are made in the image and likeness of God? Well, here's a picture for you. When you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror, you think, wow, I look good. We don't think that, do we? We think, wow, I look terrible today. I look rough. But then we take a shower and we fix ourselves up. And then we look in the mirror. And usually, usually we like the way we look. Or at least there are some days that we stare at our reflection a little longer because our hair is just how we want it or our outfit pleases us. You know those days where you just have a good day and you're like, I'm going to have to take a selfie today and put it on social media. Because in my eyes, I look good. You probably look the same to everybody every day. But you know what I'm talking about. Those days where, where you look good and you feel good about how you look. We all have those days, at least a few of those days, right? But the reflection that we see in the mirror, that we either like or dislike, depending on how our hair is or our outfit, that reflection is not us. It's just a reflection of us. The real us is standing in front of the mirror. The real us gets in the car. The real us drives to work. The real us grieves when the Dallas Cowboys get robbed by a very ridiculous and very subjective phrase like football move. Sorry, but the real me is still a little bitter after the referee's decision got turned over in last week's playoff game. Our reflection does not do those things. Our reflection does not get upset at the results of a football game. It's us who get upset. 
That's what it means to be the image of God. We are just a reflection of him, but we are not him. We are not God. We just reflect him. The Hebrew phrases here in Genesis 1, in our image, in his own image, in the image of God that Moses uses here in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 through 27 could be rendered, let us make man as our image. I think that's the better way to translate the Hebrew preposition here. Let us make man as our image. So to be the image of God means that we are God's representatives in this world. It means that we live as human beings who are his representatives on this planet. And that's precisely the idea behind the Hebrew word for image here, the Hebrew word selim. This word was used throughout the ancient Near East for models and statues and images and replicas. As a king conquered foreign lands, they would set up statues of themselves in those lands that they had brought under their control. Maybe you remember the the statue of Saddam Hussein being pulled down to the ground. Very similar idea here. The statues were not identical to the kings, but they represented the kings. Therefore, you would not dare desecrate or vandalize the image of the king because that was paramount to desecrating the king himself. Think about what we do to other human beings who are the image of God. So kings would make all kinds of shapes and images of their likeness to be displayed all over the land. Big statues, little ones to hang from your car mirror, something you could put above your fireplace. They were made of silver and gold and and ruby and clay. They were everywhere. These images of the king or the gods were the modern day equivalent of billboards or ads, or better yet, maybe even political bumper stickers. The king wanted everyone in his kingdom to be reminded of who was in charge. And that Moses, you remember, is writing to Israel who came out of 400 years of captivity in Egypt. They saw the pictures and the statues of the pharaohs. So they knew exactly what Moses was talking about. How does the triune God make his presence as Lord known in this world? He makes images, representatives called human beings. So to be made in God's image means to represent or to image forth God. Every single human being is made in the image of God. Now notice that we aren't made in the image of a chimpanzee or a bird or a hippo that jumps out of the water and almost hits a boat. If you saw that video this last week on the internet, No, no, we're not made in the image of those things because those things are too small. We're not even made in the image of Saturn or Jupiter or the entire universe because even that is too small. We are made in the image of God, the sovereign Lord of the universe. That should floor you. That should astonish you. That should humble you. You are not God, 
but you are the image of God. When you look into the mirror and you don't like what you see, what you see is the image of God, a created being who is made to be a representative of the living God in this world. Now that kind of changes how you feel about those wrinkles, doesn't it? And those love handles. You have value, you have worth, you have dignity because the triune God made you. You have value and worth and dignity because God don't make no junk. God doesn't make junk that needs to be discarded. God doesn't make people who become obsolete. And that's why we are against abortion. We are against racism and terrorism and human trafficking and bullying and physical abuse and prostitution and slavery and any other God-dishonoring thing and any other thing that dishonors human beings. And we are against these things because human beings are wonderful creatures made in the image of the triune God. So think about this. Every single human being has the worth and value of not just any emperor or queen or king, but the king of kings. That ought to change the way that we treat one another. That ought to change the way that we talk to one another and about one another. It's convicting to work on this sermon thinking about how I've spoke about people and spoke to people and thought about people and how I've treated people. Every single human being is the image of God. But think about how we treat one another. Thank God for the gospel. Amen. Thank God that as believers, we have the righteousness of Jesus credited towards us. Thank God for that, because think about the people that you talked about this week. Think how you treated people this week. Think about how you spoke to people this week who are made in the image of God. Think about driving through that roundabout, and think about when a representative of God doesn't drive through the roundabout the correct way. How do you react Think about being the 20 items or less line at the grocery store and a representative of God shows up with 100 grocery items and they're in front of you. What do we do? Do we think to ourselves, well, looky there. There's a representative of the triune God. There's a glorious image of God and they just cut me off in the roundabout. They have such value and they are so significant. There's a glorious representative of the triune God and they're breaking grocery store etiquette. But they are royalty because they are made in God's image. Praise Jesus. We don't do that, do we? But we should. Our roommates, spouses, mother-in-laws, co-workers, even the doctor who performs abortions. All are made in God's image and therefore they have worth and value and dignity. Richard Pratt says, I think the most comprehensive definition of image of God is everything you are minus sin. 
Most comprehensive definition of the image of God. Everything you are minus sin. Everything you are is the image of God, excluding sin. But sin has messed up this world, hasn't it? This world is broken. We are broken. We're broken because the first human being made by God, Adam, we're broken and sinful because he sinned. But even though we are sinful, Human beings are wonderful creatures. We are magnificent creatures. We are marvelous creatures. We are glorious creatures because we are made in the image of God. But because we are sinners, we sometimes think of humanity as being bad, don't we? Let me ask you this morning, what comes to your mind when you think of humans? What comes to your mind when you think of human beings? When you think of humanity, when you think of people, what do you think of? What are some synonyms of humanity? The most popular and common evangelical answer is this, sinful. The most popular and evangelical understanding of what it means to be fully humans is that humans are sinful. Our tendency when we think of human beings is to think of them as sinful. What most often comes to our mind when we think of humanity is that we think of humanity as sinful. And we do that, and rightfully so, because we are sinners. And we believe that the Bible teaches that every person born into this world is a sinner. We believe that here at Grace. But let me ask you a question. Can you have something that is fully human and not sinful? Can you have something fully human and not sinful? Yes. Yes, you can have something that is fully and completely human and have it not be sinful. Now, that may startle some of you because you may equate being a human being with sin. But you can have something that is fully human and not be sinful. So the question becomes then, who and when? Who and when can you have human beings who are completely human and yet are without sin? How is this possible? Since all that we know is that we are sinners. How can you have someone fully human and yet without sin? There are three examples in Scripture. Example number one, Adam and Eve. In the book of Genesis, we have two whole chapters of two human beings made up of two parts, material and immaterial, body and spirit, and yet without sin until they finally do sin. See, in the church, we have subtly bought the lies that to be fully human is to be sinful. But Adam and Eve, prior to the fall, prior to Adam and Eve sinning and rebelling against God, they show us that you can be fully human and not sinful. That's example number one. Example number two, our future resurrected bodies. Our future hope, the the hope of Christianity is that we will one day be resurrected and be fully human. And never, ever, ever, ever sin again. So why do we think that to be fully human is sinful? Let me ask you, what do you plan on being for eternity? 
an angel playing a harp in the clouds, one of those little chubby cherubs flying through the air playing an old mandolin like in the Renaissance paintings, you will be a human being, Christian, forever, for eternity, on the new earth, walking in a body just like you have now, but it will be glorified and resurrected. There'll be no traces of sin. You'll look just like you look. You'll, I mean, this is what heaven's gonna look like. Look around, look at one another. I know some of you are wanting a new nose. I don't know that you're gonna get that. They didn't see Jesus after the resurrection and say, whoa, you got a new hairstyle. It seemed to be like he looked the same. Maybe you will. I don't know. You take that before the Lord. You're going to look the same, I believe. You're going to have a body just like you have right now on the new earth. And you'll be without sin. You'll be fully human and without sin. You will be a human being for eternity and you will have eyeballs and ears and a nose and big toes and armpits and shins and buttocks. And if you don't like that, then you have a problem with your anthropology. You don't understand humanity. And it's also a problem with your theology because human beings are wonderful creatures. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. That's what Genesis 2 is doing. It's coming back after the first, after the creation account in Genesis 1. It's circling back around again to highlight that human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. So whales are cool if you like whales and elephants and tigers and bearded vultures and all those things. But they get trumped by human beings. Human beings are the highlight of God's creation. So we go to the zoo. This is what we do. We go to the zoo and we pay money to stare at giraffes with a crooked neck, like the one that used to be in the Santa Barbara Zoo. Remember that one? And we stare at them, or we stare at gorillas that escape and harm human beings, like the gorilla Jabari that escaped in the Dallas Zoo several years ago, if you heard about that. And we go and we stare at elephants and flamingos, all the while, we're surrounded by other human beings. Other human beings who are staring at these animals with us. Other human beings who are the pinnacle of God's creation. You can come here to church every week and be surrounded by living things called human beings who are the pinnacle of God's creation. Look around. We ought to start charging you money like the zoo to come here every week and look at one another and stare at one another. We ought to start charging you money to come here each week to be around other human beings who are the highlight of God's creation. I ought to charge you money for looking at me right now. I'll let you purchase a season pass if you would like. Human beings are the highlight of God's creation. That's why we're against abortion. That's why we're against racism. That's why we're against slavery and human trafficking. That's why we're against bullying. That's why we're against child abuse and spousal abuse. That's why we're against slandering. Because human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. You are the pinnacle of God's creation. And that's what the psalmist is declaring in Psalm 139. So turn to Psalm 139. Keep in mind, David, whoever's writing this psalm, is writing post-fall, after Adam's sin, after sin entered this world. 
Psalm 139. Listen to how the psalmist describes fallen, broken, sinful humanity, beginning in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. When the psalmist says, wonderful are your works, he is talking about how God created human beings, how God creates human beings now. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are marvelous, magnificent, and glorious creatures. But understand this about Psalm 139. The psalmist did not get in a time machine and go back to the Garden of Eden before Adam sinned and then write Psalm 139. The psalmist did not show up in a time machine in the Garden of Eden and say, hey, Adam, I'm from the future. I'm just like you, except that I'm broken and sick with sin. Sin dehumanized me, Adam. In fact, your sin dehumanized me, Adam. But that's another story. But let me observe you, Adam, because you are the pinnacle of creation. Let me watch you, and I'll get out my pen and paper and write a song about you that I'm going to title Psalm 139. No, the psalmist in Psalm 139 is not talking about Adam before he sinned. No, the psalmist is talking about fallen, sinful humanity like you and me. And what he's saying in Psalm 139 is that God don't make no junk. God doesn't make junk that needs to be tossed away. God doesn't make people who become obsolete, Oh yes, it's true that we are sinners and the psalmist would tell you that sin dehumanized you. He would tell you that Adam's sin dehumanized every human conceived and being born into this world, but he would also tell you that human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. Even though you are broken as a human being, even though you're a sinner, you are still the highlight of God's creation. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation, so much so that Jesus became one of them and lived as one of them. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation, so much so that Jesus became one of them and lived as one of them and died as one of them. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation, so much so that Jesus became one of them and lived as one of them and died as one of them and came back from the dead as one of them. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation, so much so that Jesus became one of them and lived as one of them and died as one of them and came back from the dead as one of them and will be one of them forever in a glorified body. And so example number three in the scriptures of someone who is fully human and without sin is our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 15 tell us that Jesus was like us in every single respect, yet without sin. So Jesus is the premier example of someone being fully human and yet not being sinful. And one day, The Bible tells us in Romans 8, 29, we Christians 
who have trusted in him and turned from our sins, we will be made like him and conformed to his image. That's the gospel. Not just that we have our sins forgiven, but that we are declared right. Our sins are forgiven. We're being made right, conformed to the image of Jesus. We'll be resurrected and transformed and conformed to his image. Never to sin again. That's the gospel. And Jesus is going to do the same for you, Christian. That's how important human beings are to God. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation and that's why we're against abortion and slavery and terrorism and child abuse and human trafficking and sexual morality and racism and bullying. Jesus became a human being and was resurrected as a human being and Jesus will be a human being forever and he will do the same for you. And yet some Christians can't wait to get out of their bodies and become non-human. So many Christians hate their bodies. They are functional Gnostics. They embrace dualism like the Gnostic heretics in the second century who said the body is bad. We can just get rid of this body and then our spirit will be free. Just get me out of my body because it's why I sin. It's my problem. Set me free. Or however the song goes, set my spirit free that I might worship thee. That's Gnostic. We worship God with our bodies too, don't we? So some Christians just want to get out of their body For some Christians, their view of salvation is their dehumanization. They don't want to be a human being forever because they've made this terrible connection between sin and humanity. They've made this terrible assumption that to be human is to be sinful. Some Christians think that the human body is to blame for sin. And in order to experience salvation, they must get out of the body. But that's not Christian. It is absurd to think this way because you are going to be a human being for eternity whether you believe in Jesus or not. If you don't believe in Jesus, then you will be resurrected as a human being and you will spend eternity in hell suffering torment forever as a fully complete human being. Now, I don't want that for any of you. I want you to run to Jesus today and confess your sin and rebellion and trust in him alone for salvation. But if you don't do that, you will be resurrected one day and you will spend eternity in hell, in your body, just like it is right now, suffering torment forever. You will be a human being forever. But for Christians... Those of you who have repented of your sins and you trust in Jesus alone, you are going to be a human being forever too. You will be fully human and without sin. Oh, please let me say that again because that is an awesome sentence. Listen again, Christians, to this gospel-rich sentence. You will be fully human and without sin. Sin. For eternity, Christians will be fully human and without sin. That's amazing. I can't even wrap my brain around that. I cannot even begin to comprehend that because I know that sin dehumanized me. All that I know in this life is sin. Sin dehumanized you and me and every person in this world. 
And that's precisely why abortion exists. And that's why racism and bullying and terrorism and slavery and abuse in the home happens. It's all because of sin. So we groan waiting for that day when we will be fully human and never sin. We groan, as Paul says in Romans 8, with all of creation, waiting for Jesus to make all things new. We wait as image bearers of God in a fallen, broken world. But until then, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 17, that we're called to honor everyone. Until Jesus returns to make everything sad come untrue, we are called to honor every single human being. We are called to take a stand against things, wicked things that human beings do. So on one hand, we're called to honor every human being, but then we're called to defend human beings. We're called to take a stand against any person or organization that tries to belittle God's creation, namely human beings. So this is why we are against abortion. This is why we must stand up for the unborn. This is why we must do our part to pray and petition, do whatever we can, do our part in this country so that Lord willing, one day abortion will be illegal in the United States of America and around the world. This is why we fight for the unborn because they have no voice whatsoever. We fight because human beings are marvelous, magnificent, glorious creatures. We fight because human beings are made in the image of God. And this is why we are called to take a stand against racism. Because every human being, regardless of skin color, is valuable. Red and yellow, black and white, Jesus loves all of his creation. And this is why we are called to take a stand against human trafficking and slavery. We are called to take a stand against people selling little boys and girls into the sex market. That's so perverted and sickening. Because they're the image of God. And this is why we are called to take a stand against terrorism and prostitution and bullying and physical abuse in the home, whether it be the spouse or the children. We are against all of these things because all of these things happen to God's creation. We are against these things simply because God don't make no junk. Human beings were not made to be tossed out in garbage bags at abortion clinics. Human beings were not made to be beat up because of the color of their skin. Human beings were not made to be blown up by a bomb strapped to someone's chest. Human beings were not made to be physically abused by family members. Human beings were not made to be sold into the various slave markets. Human beings have value and worth and dignity because they are images of God. Human beings are not to be deemed obsolete by any person. Human beings are not to be deemed obsolete by any organization. And human beings are not to be deemed obsolete by any government. And so maybe we should listen to Rod Serling's closing monologue to that episode of The Twilight Zone called The Obsolete Man. He says this, the chancellor, the late chancellor was only partly correct. He was obsolete. But so is the state, the entity he worshiped. Any state, 
any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for mankind in the twilight zone. May God have mercy on the United States of America. May God have mercy on this country of ours that mocks his holiness. May God have mercy on the United States of America and all the nations of the world. And then may God have mercy on us. There is mercy here for everyone today. Maybe you had an abortion. Maybe your girlfriend or wife had an abortion. There is mercy. God forgives sinners. If you have had an abortion and you're a Christian, God doesn't see that anymore. It's gone. That record is gone. He doesn't look at you and see someone who did that. He looks at you and sees someone who is covered with the righteousness of his son. I know there's pain. I know there's sorrow but there's mercy and grace for every single person here. There's mercy and grace for those of us who have mistreated others with our words and our actions. There's mercy and grace for those of us here today who have not honored our president, not honored the leaders of our nation and our state and our city. There's mercy because we've all messed up. We've all treated Human beings who are the pinnacle of creation, we've all treated them like they're garbage. But there's mercy for us because of Jesus. There's forgiveness today. We can leave here today not with our heads hanging down thinking, I haven't been radical enough. I haven't done enough to stop abortion. I haven't done enough to care for the unborn. We don't have to leave here today with our heads hanging low. There's mercy for all of us. To just move on and by God's grace, by the power of the Spirit, through his word, to begin making a difference in whatever sphere of influence that we have. There's mercy for every single person here because every single person here is a sinner. And it's all because of Jesus. May Jesus give us steel spines to stand against these atrocious things. And may Jesus give us soft hearts to love those who do these things. And may Jesus protect and rescue people from these awful things. And may Jesus receive honor as his people learn to honor everyone. And may his gospel, his good news be proclaimed so that Jesus is cherished in every nation, every race, every tribe, and every tongue by every man, woman, and child. Let's pray. Father, you are a merciful God and you don't give us what we deserve because as a nation and as individuals, Lord, we have mistreated your creation and we're all guilty of that. And so we just say, Father, forgive us. People need hope and encouragement and reassurance of your love today. And I pray that by your spirit, you would do that now, Father. And I pray that abortion would be illegal one day in this country and around the world. I pray that you would stop 
pedophiles in their tracks. You would stop people from selling other human beings into the various slave markets. You would stop racists. You would stop people who physically abuse their family members. God, you would stop terrorists. And you would stop us even from the things that we say about other people. Our only hope is your son, Jesus. Come and help us, we ask. In his name we pray, amen.